Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Howard. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligning our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. Hope everyone is staying sane. With spring right around the corner, the sun shining, the flowers blooming, it's easy to feel the cabin fever get to you in this current lockdown. Counting down the days so we can finally swarm the garden pubs like it's our God-given Independence Day. But until then, and as we reflect our time in our golden prisons that have become our houses, it's a good opportunity to think about what actual prison is like and the rules and regulations surrounding it. We're all familiar with the cornerstone legal principle, innocent until proven guilty. But have you ever wondered what protections, if any, do the guilty deserve? Here to answer that question more this week is Shikar Keeter prison law solicitor at Kizer & Co, and UCL Law Grad. In the episode, we discuss the history and purpose behind prison, prison law's interaction with human rights law, public law, and criminal law, and the various themes and trends going on in the prison law sphere, not least of which is the underreported and devastating impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on prisoners. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Shikar. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Max. How are you doing? Are you well? Very good, very good. So we've got a lot of things to talk about today, but before we jump in, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So my name is Shikar Kaida. I'm a prison law solicitor and a criminal appeals supervisor at Kessler and Case Solicitors. And by the time this podcast comes out, I would have had my ninth year anniversary of working at Kessler and Case Solicitors and in prison law. As a prison law solicitor, a significant percentage of my work uh, is with those who are convicted. Um, I work with two paralegals at present, and I supervise the other solicitors and caseworkers and paralegals undertaking criminal appeals work at Kisarenko Solicitors. Nine years. Wow. A long time. So what is prison law? So prison law um, is an umbrella term covering the statutory legislation, statutory instruments, case law, policies, and local guidance that are concerned with the running of prisons, those working within prisons, in addition to those uh, detained within prisons. Um, These include uh, the conditions that the prisons must be in, the qualifications of those individuals working within prisons, who can be in a particular type of prison, and of great importance, the rights of the prisoners what rights can be expected from the prison and staff working within those establishments, and what responsibilities are expected of uh, those prisoners detained in the establishments. So if you were to distinguish it from, say, criminal law, prison law happens, everything kind of that happens after the criminal trial, so to speak. Yes. Uh, however, you can distinguish that further in the sense that individuals who are convicted don't always end up in prison. So it's really after you've been convicted and have ended up in prison. However, in some circumstances, if an individual is very dangerous, 
before the criminal trial takes place, they will have ended up in prison and held on remand because they're deemed to be too dangerous to be allowed out, either because they're they're deemed to pose a risk to society or because they're deemed to pose a risk of tampering with evidence or absconding. So it deals really with the moment an individual steps inside the prison, is searched, um, is handed their prison uniform and allocated a cell. So from that very moment you go past the gate, prison law applies then. And so what is the history and purpose behind prisons? You know, this brings up the arch old debate of punishment versus rehabilitation. And it seems like either it's one or the other. Now, is this, say, a cultural choice? Does the UK choose one or the other? Or is it kind of a mixture of both? Because we've seen pictures on the internet comparing, say, the prison system in America versus that of Scandinavia. So, Max, from the birth of modern civilization in 300 BC, almost every major ancient civilization had some sort of prison as a means to detain and remove an individual's freedom for particular types of behavior. In the early days, prisons were often dungeons used before handing out a sentence of death or a lifetime of slavery. You know, if we think about historically what happened in the UK, people were sent off to the Americas, people were sent off to Australia, and so on. If you did not uh, meet your end at the gallows, you were often sent off to one of those colonies. However, if we think about actually prisons today, or prisons historically, you know, you can actually visit Athens in Greece today, or when we are eventually able to go back on holiday, and you'll be able to visit the prison of the famous philosopher Socrates, who was detained for impiety against the pantheon of Athens and for corruption of the youth. In the medieval period, prisons were often dungeons and torture chambers, places that very few people who entered ever came out of. It was often a place for those accused of treason or blasphemy. If we go to English history of prison and the rules concerning the rights of man, in 1215, King John issued the Magna Carta, and with it, the first proper documented rule asserting that no man can be detained without a trial. As Europe went through the Age of Enlightenment and the development of universal rights, rules had to be put in place to protect those in prison. The current English and Welsh statutory framework of prison law comes from the Prison Act 1952 and the Prison Rules 1999. If we think about prisons today, they are more advanced than they have ever been. In addition to those laws, there are a significant degree of cross-interaction with other legislations, such as the Human Rights Act, the Equality Act, and other legislations that somehow interact with prisoners' rights. Today, in an environment where we deem the UK to be very multicultural, and especially England and Wales, prisons uh, detain people from all walks of life. Citizens, foreign nationals, members of the Church of England, other uh, members of the Christian community, and others uh, belonging to different faiths. Those who are fit and healthy, and those who have physical disability or mental health condition. The rules have to be interpreted broadly so as to meet those needs and the rights of those detained. To that effect, the Ministry of Justice has over the years added to the body of the rules through the prison service orders, prison service instruments and prison works. At the same time, the courts have also over the years further refined the scope of those rules 
by restricting or extending them. So what you have is if we think about the prison rules as the skeleton over the years through the prison service instrument orders and prison policy and court, you have been able to create the organs to allow this system to function properly. So what is the purpose of prison? This prison system is there to protect society by detaining people who are deemed to be dangerous. It is there to protect those detained in those environments by providing them with their basic rights for the time in custody to be used for rehabilitative purposes, either by gaining vocational skills or by educational courses, or ensuring that the prisoner undertakes offender behaviour programmes to ensure that they have the understanding of their offences, their actions and inactions leading them to that particular offence, and how they conduct themselves in the future to prevent themselves from getting into that scenario. British approach to prisons is somewhere between the United States approach and uh, that of the Scandinavian countries, in that the United States approach is concerned with mass incarceration, having people sentenced for a significant period of time and moving them from society, whilst the Scandinavian approach, on the other hand, is to treat those inmates in as comfortable life as possible whilst having their liberty removed, fund their rehabilitation programmes to ensure that the prisoner is not harmed by the psychological impact of the custodial sentence and is able to come out and be a productive member of society. The problem with the UK approach is that whilst we do have the approach with removing that dangerous member from society, we are not funding the rehabilitation programme as well as we should be to reduce that reoffending rate. The problem with this is that the UK has one of the largest uh, prison populations in Europe. In fact, I think it's the largest prison population in Europe if we were talking about you know, the ratio of prisoners to a number of people in the population. And paying for the rehabilitation programme would be extremely costly and, in my opinion, would be a vote uh, loser for any government at any election. So they fund it sufficiently, but not to the level that is absolutely needed. That's quite interesting uh, how you talked about it being an unpopular policy. And I think this brings up the perception that society has with prisoners. I mean, as a society, we very much value the legal principle innocent until proven guilty. But here, as we talked about, when it comes to prisons, the majority of those in prisons are people who after being convicted, after standing trial and being found guilty of their offense, are there. And so therefore, you know, the perception is that the rights and liberties of these prisoners is less deserving than, say, the ordinary citizen. So to invest kind of taxpayer money, to invest resources into the rehabilitation and integration of these offenders, of these who have contempted, say, the social contract, is a bit bizarre. So what do you say to that perception? I think, uh, unfortunately, Max, we have a very poor perception of prisoners, prisons, prison life, and the importance of rehabilitation in this country. There are a, a number of loud voices who demand that those who are convicted to be locked up indefinitely in a cold dungeon-like cell on a bed of hay and on a diet of bread, potato and water you know, some people's perception are based on, you know, uh, historical books that they've read or 
movies like Robin Hood that they've seen where somebody's arrested, detained and put into the castle dungeon. Uh, unfortunately, this completely fails to account for the impact that removing an individual from society has on that individual. The fact that very few offences practically result in an indefinite detention of an individual, and therefore the majority of people who enter prison are eventually released. And the need for them to be able to reintegrate back into society is absolutely vital. We do not want to send people into a prison system after which they come out of. They come out with mental health problems that further contributes to their uh, offending. Imprisoning an individual doesn't just take away their liberty. It takes away from them their independence and forces on them to become very much dependent on those managing and running the prisons. By providing these individuals with their basic rights, ensuring that their custodial time is used productively, you are actively reducing the chances of riots, harming their mental health, and increasing the prospect of a successful reintegration back to society to ensure that the funds used and spent on that individual's custodial sentence has not gone to complete waste, and that you're reducing the chance of incurring further taxpayer costs by contributing to their reoffending, and as a result, you know, having them go through the entire criminal justice system again, you know, the cost of lawyers, the cost of courts, the cost of judges, and having them sent back to prison. Most of these individuals, although not all, will be returning back to their families. So if their sentence has harmed them, whether it's psychologically, it will be their loved ones who have to face the impact of that harm and how it manifests externally. So society does have a duty to these people. And the reason why we have a duty to these people is because these people will eventually come back in amongst us. And so the question is, do we want them to come back amongst us and smoothly transition back into a law-abiding, positive role model and positive member of society? Or do we just forget about them and constantly have to spend an extortionate amount of money of uh, you know paying for them through the legal system and also the other thing is what impact does this have on the people around them and whether it contributes to those people ending up in the criminal justice system themselves as well so there is that duty and i think more needs to be done to highlight what prisons do how they work and what benefit it has to society so that the population have a better understanding so a lot of different kind of facets to that duty. So we talked about kind of the moral reasoning, the social reasoning, but also just, you know, from a pragmatic economic perspective. If at the end of the day, what society is worried about is, you know, wasting taxpayer money, then there is that incentive to spend into their rehabilitation to prevent recidivism or any other type of future long-term uh, costs. I was actually quite surprised when you talked about, you know, the perception being manipulated by us watching Robin Hood and our conception of these medieval type prisons, because it's also in modern pop culture, contemporary pop culture, how we see the representation of prisoners and prisons uh, in movies and TV shows. Uh, typically, these are characterized by, you know, prisoners having sort of a criminal like enterprise, even within prisons, you know, drugs, murders. And it really shows that uh, conception of prisoners as somehow being irredeemable, you know, that they, they're they not willing to change. And so therefore that no matter what they do, they will continue being that way. And 
I wonder whether, you know, it's also that that's really damaging to our societal perception of prisoners and their ability to change. I mean, if we think about, you know, today's modern pop culture, the reason for some of these um, programs, movies, and the way they deal with prisoners is prisoners have this myth of being very, very dangerous. And danger, there's always a fine line between danger and excitement. And it's, uh, you know, that danger is used to excite the audience and to keep them watching so that, you know, the programs get great number of viewers, you know, the more horrible and offences and the more gory it is, the more exciting it would be to an audience. And therefore people go back. And, you know, again, that brings in the money to pay the actors. The reality is, you know, there are a significant number of individuals who have committed some of the most awful offences who actively rehabilitate. I mean, I'll give you one example of uh, Her Majesty's Prison Grendon. Um, This prison usually works with people who are on life sentences. And really, you don't get a life sentence for taking sweets from the local candy shop. You know, you get life sentences for very serious offences. And the work they do at HMP Grendon is absolutely phenomenal. They do therapy on a daily basis, you know, go through this individual's lifestyle, you know, their impact, their childhood had on them, on their decision making, for example. And they do this again and again and again, you know, in a way that reprograms that individual. And these people come back out, not only, in a sense, reprogrammed, in my opinion, but also come back out to be a positive member of society. I have done a significant, I think over 20, 30 parole hearings at that establishment. And honestly, myself as a law-abiding individual have learned from reading these individuals' paperwork and the work uh, that they undertake. The work done in this establishment with these people genuinely reduces the chances of them reoffending because they learn what correct approach to take. But it also gives them a level of confidence, a level of skill set that when they come out, they are able to stand on their own feet. And even when faced with challenges that could destabilize them, they are able to handle it and continue to stand on their own feet and make their way forward. So my point is this. Today's pop social culture is very, very different from the reality. Yes, there will always be individuals who come out convicted of very serious offences who go on to commit very, very serious offences. But that's usually the outliers. That's usually people who have not uh, really gone through the rehabilitation system properly. And the majority, I mean, in all honesty, the majority of prisoners from this establishment who deal with life sentence prisoners come out and become a positive uh, member of society. There are people who've spent 20, 30 years in the custodial setting, and they come out and become a positive member of our society. And I think, unfortunately, that's not sexy. Unfortunately, that's not exciting. Uh, And like all news, you know, good news never really makes the front page. It's usually something that has to shock, scare or excite uh, that makes it. And that's why very few people know about it. Very few people understand it. And to their credit, HMP Grandin do allow access to society or general public to be able to come and visit the prison where you are able to actually go into the prison and talk to the prisoners on their social days. You know, you have to be obviously vetted and approved, but that opportunity is made available and some people do take it up. 
So quite interesting there, the, the idea that our, almost our, our fetishization into the, the criminal kind of the violent aspect is, is damaging to the actual kind of positive work going into the rehabilitative effort. And now remember in our previous conversation as well, that even though we like to think of prisoners as say these violent and other worldly people, that at the end of the day, some of these people are in these prisons for things that, you know, were just a result of bad circumstances that we would have been in that same position had these factual scenarios kind of, you know, applied to us. Is that correct? I mean, there have been so many cases where I've looked at it and thought, God, if only the taxi turned up on time, God, if only the bus turned up on time, you would never have been in this situation. Um, And then you think about, you know, your own general life, you go, God, if I made that decision slightly differently, that could have had a serious outcome that possibly had the possibility of, you know, landing me with a serious criminal offence and resulting in my action, resulting in me ending up in prison. You know, if you think about like basic things, you know, sometimes speeding, sometimes, you know, rushing down the aisle in a supermarket and you lose control of your trolley. It's not very hard for you to accidentally, you know, push somebody over and really harm them accident. You know, you're there, you're being reckless. You know, as individuals, every now and then, you know, make decisions that are slightly reckless that could have serious consequences. And if they go wrong, will have serious consequences. So any one of us can end up in a prison environment. I mean, the one thing, the one wonderful thing I learned from a prison officer was he was tasked with, um, you know, and in, in the training day, he was tasked with drawing a criminal. And everyone around him, you know, were drawing people with hoodies on or a person behind bars in grey striped uniform. And he drew a mirror. And the reason why that's important because is because prisoners can come from all walks of life. All it takes is one bad decision and you're in prison. So we really have to be mindful of how we treat these individuals because at any time, any one of us could end up there. And talking about that, and especially well, the idea that, you know, news about prisons, when it's good news, it doesn't really show up on the papers. Well, another conversation that we had about news about prisons that isn't showing up on the paper is the impact that COVID has had on prisoners and prisons, specifically the disproportionate amount of kind of deaths and suffering by prisoners during the COVID pandemic. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that? The impact of COVID-19 has been huge on prisoners. It's been huge on their families. It's been huge on the prison staff working within these establishments and those managing and running the prisons. Immediately following the lockdown, the Ministry of Justice implemented a policy of stopping all non-essential visits. This meant that all legal visits, parole hearings and family visits were cancelled. Prisoners instantly lost the ability to see their loved ones face to face. You and I, Max, know what that feels like. You know, some of us haven't been able to see some of our loved ones. However, at the same time, prison governors were tasked with implementing full lockdowns, forcing prisoners not involved in essential work of cooking, cleaning, etc., to remain behind their doors for up to 23 and a half hours a day. Now, whilst we've not been able to see our friends and loved ones, we have no idea what it's like to be locked up behind your door for 23 and a half hours a day and only being allowed out for 30 minutes to have a shower, to, you know, do your cleaning, to make a call to loved ones or your lawyer. We genuinely have no idea of the psychological impact 
that this lockdown has had on prisoners. The governors recognised um, that their staff will inevitably bring the disease into the prisons. Obviously, this is through no fault of their own. And their job here was to minimise the spread. And to a certain extent, this worked. Although once it got into the prison following the second lockdown, it spread like wildfire. And unfortunately, a significant number of prisoners have lost their lives to the disease. Whilst I may sound gloomy about the impact that COVID-19 has had on the prison system, it is also important to commend some of those governors who actively took steps to ensure that prisoners were given extra credit to allow them to call their loved ones or their lawyer in cell competitions with awards for the, the people winning those competitions and implemented policies that allowed inmates to have over-the-phone or video link conferences uh, with uh, their lawyers, have something called Blue Visit, which allowed uh, a prisoner using an iPad or a tablet of some sort or a laptop to have a face-to-face video link with their loved ones. Prisons all of a sudden allowed for the parole process to proceed without the need for the parole board or lawyers uh, uh, to attend in person, by holding these hearings uh, over the telephone or via video link. At this moment in time, however, you know, the full impact of COVID-19 is completely unknown on the prison system. Whilst a significant number of prisoners have sadly lost their lives and self-harm has increased significantly, the long-term impact is likely to be significantly greater and it will need uh, expert research and investigation to check what we have learned from the steps that were put in place and to ensure that we have a better structure in the future. One thing we have to highlight is that prison officers in these scenarios have been heroes. The same as nurses, the same as doctors, the same as all of those individuals in frontline work. And the reason why I say that is because these individuals, not knowing the impact of COVID, on a daily basis, went into this environment and came back into an environment where the risk of catching COVID-19 was significant and they came back to their families on a daily basis. And so credit has to be given where credit's due, but also at the same time, we do have to highlight the harm that COVID-19 has caused. And hopefully over the years, we can work together to look at all the positive things and see how they can be implemented in the future should a similar problem were to arise in the future. Yeah, that's crazy. And of course, prison prison wardens, prison governors must have had a, an impossible situation there, just the, the vast kind of population in prisons and had to resort to the best measures they knew as to how to ensure social distancing and, and prevent the spread. But I'm I'm shocked at the at the realization that a lot of these prisoners were spending 23 and a half hours locked in their cells. I mean, this pandemic, these lockdowns have have caused me to question my kind of existence. But at the same time, I wasn't under nearly the same level of restrictions as uh, a prisoner has. So I can only imagine what their mental health would have been like during those long hours of isolation and even just the lack of fresh air, I believe, would have had a major impact. 
I also believe that there is an unfortunate expression when it came to you know the deaths uh, that COVID has had on prisoners is this idea of COVID-free prisons, where a prison was considered COVID-free, not because of its lack of COVID infections, but anybody that has had COVID in that prison is either dead or already built immunity. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, just going back to my earlier comment, you know, when I said uh, it's spread like wildfire, there are prisons within the country where COVID uh, touched the lives of almost everyone in there. You know, I'm aware that uh, there were entire wings where almost every single prisoner had COVID. And that's despite the fact that these lockdown measures were put in place, you know, and sadly and regrettably, a a, a number of prisoners died. uh, And um, my condolences to their families. Unfortunately, you know, in such a confined environment, an environment where people come in and out, it's very, very easy for COVID-19 to spread. And I think my one small criticism of the government here was I, I, I always felt that uh, prison staff should have had that, um, you know, that 30 minute COVID test on a two or three day basis to ensure that any one of them who had COVID can be tracked, traced, isolated, so that they don't bring it in. And all it takes is for it to spread to one person, you know, in the canteen or in dealing with prisoners cleaning, and for them to then subsequently spread it on and it goes to two people, two people pass it on to five people, and so on. Um, so sadly, yeah, I mean, a significant number of prisoners have lost their lives. Prisons and wings have become COVID-free in some uh, places simply because almost all of the prisoners ended up getting the disease and have developed immunity. And so how has your ability to serve your clients been impacted by COVID? Because I'm assuming if these prisoners are locked in their cells 23 and a half hours a day, they must not get a lot of contact with their solicitors. So to their credit, again, going back to certain prisons, to their credit, they have provided prisoners with a mobile phone to allow them to access their client to have conferences over the phone uh, with their solicitors and lawyers. Um, In some cases, like I said earlier, some prisons gave prisoners extra telephone credit to use that money to contact their lawyers. So it went from, you know, driving 50, 60 miles to a prison, going and getting searched and leaving all your property at the entrance um, and meeting face to face with an individual to situations where the entire conference either takes place over the phone or via a video link facility that the prison has. So we do still have a significant amount of contact. And on occasions, you know, uh, prisoners do write and we write back to them. But the majority of the time is now over the telephone. You know, that face to face interaction has reduced significantly. So, you know, even hearings take place either via video link or over the telephone. The hearing I had on Tuesday was supposed to take place uh, via video link. Halfway through the video link stopped and, you know, part of the team had the hearing via telephone and the other half were available via video link. So that's been the impact of COVID-19 and inability to attend prisons. So that must be quite quite a distressing situation. If you've got prisoners already in these kind of quite horrible conditions, um, obviously credit to the governors for trying to make the best conditions and accommodating, but you've got people who are locked up 
virtually 24-7. And on top of that, their rights and the processes such as kind of parole hearings are being impacted and delayed in such a manner. It must really dampen morale, no? Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what often that results in is that COVID means less members of staff. You know, some members of staff are not uh, allowed to go to work because they have to shield. Some members of staff have tested positive, so they can't go. Members of staff have come into contact with somebody who tested positive, they cannot go either. And all of a sudden, that means the workforce has reduced significantly. And like I said earlier, prisoners lose their dependence. When you're stuck behind the door, if you need to make a call to deal with a certain matter, if you need medication, if you need uh, you know, a message to be passed on to somebody to deal with an important piece of fact, sadly, you know, the, la- the lack of staff members means that these things are either delayed or they do not happen because the, uh, the staff member ending up dealing with it is so overpressured right, and has so many tasks to do that they miss one or two. And that has a serious impact on the morale levels of those prisoners. You know, as I said earlier, the number of people self-harming or attempting suicide, you know, sadly has increased exponentially during this period. And it's because of the lack of staff, uh, the pressure on the staff who are there, these things are often missed. The signs that these people are at risk is missed. And then the self-harm takes place. Uh, The support is not available to uh, help them deal with the troubles that they're having. And the self-harm takes place. And, you know, that's why we have an increased number in suicide. And unfortunately, you know, something has to be done about it. And it's going to need collaboration between people from all fields to figure out, you know, what can be put in place to ensure that this matter is dealt with. And I think and this is where we're going to come into the uh, matter of private prison. Private prisons have a better system because their prisons are more advanced. So uh, messages can be sent between a prisoner and people working in the main office. That relief from the stress that an individual is facing can sometimes be achieved by telling somebody how they feel. And having that system in place allows them to do that. Actually, on that point, I wanted to raise that because, you know, popular perception in America with the private prison system run there is that because prisons are run by for-profit companies, the standard of care of prisoners is quite low because prisoners are essentially products. The more prisoners you have, the more money you get paid from the state. And thus kind of there's less of incentive to have a greater standard of care. Now, why is it in the UK that that's any different with privately financed prisons? I think uh, in the UK, we have, um, you know, the Human Rights Act that expects a certain standard to be met. We have the Equality Act, we have the Care Act that ensures that these establishments and Uh, have and meet a minimum standard. So you already have a starting line for everyone to ensure that they start from the same uh, position. You know, we also have the prison rules and the policies, etc, etc, that puts an obligation on private prisons and state prisons to conduct themselves to a certain standard. When I talk about private prisons in terms of meeting uh, individual needs, private prisons are different from the state prisons in that they're much, much newer, 
by dint of being newer, they have been able to use technology to better meet a prisoner's needs. What having technology means there, though, is having less staff available. And the private prison in this country works slightly differently to you know the state prison in the sense that the state prison is heavily incentivized by offering rehabilitation programs, educational courses. The private sector is more tailored towards providing prisoners with employment opportunities, providing them with an updated system that they, you know, in some private prisons, they have phones in their cells. And if we think about going back to, you know, the issue of morale, a prisoner in a state prison may not be able to call their family at all, all day, apart from that 30 minutes. If you have a phone in your cell, you know, you can call your uh, family and loved ones and relieve some of that stress, you know, uh, sharing a problem is half in a problem. So, you know, there is a issue within the state system. Private prisons here work towards, you know, providing a comfortable, uh, relatively comfortable lifestyle for prisoners, but do not work as heavily as the state system on ensuring that an individual gets the rehabilitative programs uh, that they need. However, there is always an interchange of prisons. So a prisoner can go from a private prison into a state prison where they can do the programs and return to a private prison and vice versa. So essentially, a, a prisoner will get to experience more often than most, you know, both sides, both the privatized sector and the public sector of prison systems. Uh, absolutely. And the idea is, you know, you use the public sector to rehabilitate by undertaking the courses that are expected of you. And the private sector provides a, a slightly better set of conditions for you. I wanted to talk about another kind of major controversy with prison, and that's the issue of prison labor. So it's known that kind of prison labor is vastly cheaper than conventional labor, specifically in terms of things like minimum wage. And this has led to some people uh, calling prison labor to amount through slavery through the back door. Is this something that you agree with? I mean, you talked before about vocation and you know the importance of building skills. It seems like these two are a bit of contrasting narratives in, in the sense that you know people could claim that this is building employment opportunities and reintegration, but at the same time, it's really just exploiting cheap labor. Um, so there is an argument to be made for and against here. You know, um, there are uh, employment opportunities within the prison sector uh, in all lines of work. You know, prisoners have the opportunity to do cleaning. They have the opportunity to do work in the kitchens. They have the opportunity to work, for example, uh, in private companies such as DHL or recycling companies, you know, work for the, the Ministry of Defence by creating camouflage nets for the army. All these lines of work offer a prisoner the opportunity to work you know, and get outside their cell. And the majority of prisoners do take that straight away because it allows them the opportunity to get outside their cell, meet other individuals, interact with them, etc. Now, where the issue arises is the fact that these individuals are paid a small income for that day's work. You know, an afternoon's work can be as little as 50p for the entire afternoon, you know, and in some cases, and be up to about two, three pounds. Now, some people will argue that this is slave labor. You're getting these people to do work in the prison system and you are preventing their progression because you're giving them menial jobs. They're not skills that they're gaining. And therefore, you know, you are basically using slave labor to achieve an end goal and make profit from it. 
The counter argument to that is always uh, the argument that, you know, these individuals are provided with accommodation, they're provided with meals, they're provided with, uh, you know, medication, they're provided with heating, free education, and so on. So it's really, you know, there is two sides of a coin here. And, um, you know, an argument can be made in favor of each side. My thought on the matter is, is that we are getting employment opportunities in prison for prisoners. What does it do? It provides them with a great opportunity to interact, you know, and get away from that, uh, you know, room that they call a cell and release, uh, you know, some of their stresses. At the same time, I think, you know, time should be spent better in providing them with more meaningful work. You know, one of the great things being done is something called BICS, which is the British Institute of Cleaning Services. And in addition to, you know, teaching prisoners how to clean, they provide them with qualifications so that when they come out, you know, they're fully qualified to be able to take on a skilled job. You know, cleaning is not an unskilled labor, you know, in dealing with certain chemicals, dealing with blood, et cetera, et cetera, you require a certain degree of knowledge on what chemicals can ha- deal with those situations and ensure that that surface is clean. Maybe better time can be spent educating people when it comes to actual physical labor, you know, uh, brickwork building, there is painting and decorating courses that are made available. I think, you know, you have to strike a right balance. And maybe, in my opinion, the thing that you can do is pay prisoners a bit better to ensure that they have a significantly greater amount of finances when they come out so that they do not fall into the crack where they don't have support available to them and return back to uh, their bad associates. That actually brings me to my next question. What would you say are the biggest barriers for an ex-convict to reintegrate into society? I think the biggest barrier for an ex-convict to reintegrate back into society successfully is money and accommodation. If we think about it, you know, if you have accommodation, you have a roof over your head. If you have money, you can pay for your daily uh, living needs. And um, that stops you from having to either do petty offending or returning to negative associates for that support, uh, for that financial support, for that, you know, uh, support, uh, uh, be it emotional support, et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, uh, to be provided an accommodation. And those individuals who then expect you to go out and either sell drugs or get you involved in some sort of criminal pastime. It's important to know at this moment in time that, you know, prisons are often released from prison with whatever savings they've made in that time that they've been there, um, with a one-day travel pass and just under £50 worth of cash. In a number of cases, they are often released without accommodation. You know, as you can imagine, that money that they have is just not enough to put a roof over their head. And, you know, you need a roof over your head before you can get your hands on benefits and get ready to get back into employment. For some people, you know, that there is also a lack of familial support and a social support structure available to them to allow them to, you know, take those early steps back into reintegrating back into society and becoming the up standing member of society and in those situations you know that lack of stability often leads them to fall back into a lifestyle of reoffending 
if we can help uh, deal with these two issues, then we can ensure that you know we provide a degree of stability to allow these individuals to make those next few steps. And whilst they're standing fully, you know they won't fall back into um, you know a lifestyle of reoffending. So then the emphasis is on kind of giving them a greater, say, allowance, more than £50, such as a kind of a, a stipend of, say, £500 or £1,000 upon being released from prison, or at least having guaranteed accommodation. I can imagine, you know, you spend 10 years serving a sentence, you get on the other side, and you're given a bus pass and £50 or £45 in this case. It must be a complete shock. I mean... Absolutely. I think, you know, what we can do is ensure that, you know, an individual when released from prison isn't given a tent. Shockingly, that does happen. Some people are given tents. I'm aware that over the summer, there was a particular prison that was asking members of society if they could, you know, charitably donate toilet paper, cleaning products, so that they can pass it on to those individual men who were released from that particular prison. If we can meet that basic need of accommodation and provide a small sum of money, we can allow them to take that next two, three, four steps so that they can stand properly and be able to stand on their own two feet. And, you know, once you are able to do that, you know, you start getting benefits, you will start able to, you know, have a GP, you will be able to have your medical needs met. Once you get benefits, you know, you get onto job seekers, you get the support there uh, to be able to return back into employment. And once you get into employment, really, it takes you away from those negative peers. And at the same time, it's not like society isn't getting any benefits out of this. Uh, you know, the investment into the reintegration of ex-convicts into society will lead to economic growth, more of a positive workforce, uh, isolated from the negative influences and more into, you know, putting into the jobs and providing for the economy. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I have to uh, give a shout out to Exceed, which is a charity that works with prisoners and helps them to get back into employment. I'm always of the opinion, you know, that you do have to take a financial hit at the very beginning to ensure that you save at a later date, um, you know, and you'll save significantly more than the amount that you put in at the very beginning. But again, it's not a vote winner. The public are not going to be happy about money being spent. And I think it will take a very, very brave politician to stand up and, you know, prove to the people that we do need this. We do need to take active steps. Unfortunately, the current uh, Secretary of State for Justice is concerned and thinks that they can get votes by passing harsh sentences, which has proven over the years does not achieve anything. Yeah, I mean, especially in the context that we live in now, in the height of uh, terrorism and violence, uh, it's a lot more sexy for politicians to really have this stance of being tough on crime rather than being somehow more sympathetic, uh, more rehabilitative. Um, yet it's ironic that it ends up producing the inverse effect of, you know, exacerbating the current issues which we are concerned with tackling. I mean, from my point of view, I don't think you need to say that you're being sympathetic. What you need to do is say that you're taking an educated approach to this line of uh, work uh, in the sense that all the data points to 
funding at the beginning to ensure that the matters are dealt with, that the rehabilitation takes place, that the people who then come out of prison are provided with a degree of support so that they do not fall back into a lifestyle of offending. And unfortunately, that's just not sexy. And again, it does take a very brave politician to come out and do that. And if I may say so, you know, Michael Gove, you know, despite whatever people think of him, was going along this line uh, before he was removed from uh, his position as the uh, Justice Secretary. And so talking about educated approaches and approaches more generally, what's your approach then as a prison solicitor? You know, what is it that you do on a, on a week-to-week basis? So as a prison uh, solicitor um, and uh, as all prison lawyers, you know, lawyers in this field of practice, you are responsible for practicing a number of areas of law. You know, I represent prisoners with their uh, prison law matters, such as, uh, you know, represent them at the parole board by making written submissions to the parole board or representing them uh, as an advocate in their hearings, representing prisoners as an advocate at adjudications in front of the independent judge, um, you know, making written formal submissions for recategorization of clients move it, wanting to move from a higher security to a lower security establishment, representation to prisons to ensure that my clients are allowed to visit their dying relatives or uh, attend a funeral, and, you know, along with that, many other things. However, in addition, as I said, you know, I'm also the criminal appeal supervisor. Convicted prisoners often want a second opinion following their conviction to assist the merits of an application to challenge the safety of their convictions or appeal their sentences. And over the years, uh, I have been quite fortunate enough to take a number of cases to the Court of Appeal and successfully either challenge the individual sentence or their convictions. However, there is also other lines of work. So, for example, the prison is a public body and sometimes they make unlawful decisions and when they refuse to change that unlawful decision following a pre-action protocol letter i undertake judicial uh, review proceedings on the instructions of my clients and take that particular prison to the high court on occasions you know the conduct of prisons and or their officers also falls below the lines of the minimum standards expected of them and breaches that individual's human rights or the prison officer has acted in a discriminatory way, and we take legal action at the county court for these breaches also. I also supervise a number of people and help teach the junior colleagues that I'm responsible for. So actually on that last, on that penultimate point on judicial review, it's actually fascinating the amount of, say, landmark cases that we use today to uphold, say, our principles with public law and the relation between the state and the individual that have originated from uh, prison law cases or parole board hearings? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, prisons is a melting pot for uh, case law. So many things go on within the prisoners who make, uh, uh, you know, significant errors. The government wants to pass policies that lawyers think are in breach of the Human Rights Act or in direct uh, contravention with the Human Rights Act or the Equality Act. And these matters are challenged through the High Court. And, you know, they result in case law. 
Um, you know, if you think about over the years, there is the, uh, the Bruton versus uh, the um, uh, HMP uh, swell side and others and the Secretary of State for Justice, uh, for example. That's a case where individuals, confidential legal mail were being opened and read. And that had to be challenged through the High Court. You know, there is the Goldsworthy case uh, concerning an individual being recalled back into prison on license and whether, you know, that recall was lawful. And the probation service undertook everything that they could to ensure that this guy's risk can be managed. And there, there is many, many more over the years. You know, if we think about the challenges that a number of charities brought to Chris Graylin's uh, draconian conduct whilst the uh, as the Secretary of State for Justice, you know, preventing prisoners from being able to purchase books from the community or, you know, the restrictions that were put in place by the Conservative Party as to what areas of prison law could be funded. Again, all of these went to the courts and were challenged uh, in that manner. And so discussing more generally in terms of back to your approach, given the wide range of work that you do, so we're talking about judicial review, you know, upholding prisoners' human rights, but also more generally, say, the more administrative, procedural, progressive and disciplinary issues, as well as, say, the educational uh, role that you take on in educating your paralegals and, and, and other members on prison law. Would you consider yourself a, a generalist in a sense? Or would you consider yourself a specialist? Because it seems that you're doing a wide range of things, but you're also within this kind of contained specialist area of all things prison. I mean, I have practiced uh, in this field for just under a decade and I've represented several hundred clients in that time, which has allowed me to develop a significant understanding of the area uh, that I've learned. And, you know, uh, I've learned through that experience. I think the longevity of my practice in this field and also, you know, the interaction with the other areas has allowed me to specialise and become much better prison lawyer. Um, so I think you know, sometimes as a uh, as a lawyer, you do need to be able to undertake other areas of work to get a better understanding of your field of practice. And I think the skills I've gained from those other fields has allowed me to specialize uh, over the years. I like that idea, you know, this idea of exploring other areas of law has allowed, has strengthened, you know, your passion uh, and competence within kind of present law to the point where you've now become a specialist within it. Uh, absolutely, yes. I think sometimes, you know, there is a degree of interaction. There are skills that you can bring in from other uh, fields uh, into, you know, the area that you are specializing in, uh, which strengthens uh, your core skills that you have in that field. Now, out of curiosity, so you talked about how you've represented hundreds of, of prisoners, hundreds of clients. How do you get a prisoner as your client, or rather the inverse? How does a prisoner get you as a solicitor? Uh, obviously, at, at this point, they are within prison or heading into prison. You know, is, it, is it word of mouth amongst prisoners, or how, how, do, they, how do they find out about your services? I mean, um, for somebody like myself and some of my colleagues, uh, at, both at my firm and at other firms, it often is word of mouth. If a prisoner has had, you know, a good experience with you and another prisoner shares their problems with this particular client of yours, they often pass a message on and, you know, and uh, that individual then gets in contact. However, there's also something called the inside time. Again, this is something not many uh, people know about. And the inside time is a newspaper specifically for prisoners. 
And if you want, Max, I'm sure I can send you a copy one day. It's very, very <laughs> interesting. You know, um, you get like the basic news, uh, fr- uh, you know, once a month. And also you get advertisement from solicitors. You have solicitors like our firm where we frequently um, answer prisoners' questions and those are published. You know, a prisoner has a question with a particular area of law. They ask it. Somebody in our firm answers it. That gets published. And then other prisoners, you know, look at that problem. They see that they have something similar and they contact us directly. So, you know, it's word of mouth and through advertisement as well. Good, good. Because, I mean, even as, as a law student, not knowing that, that prison law had existed, I could only imagine what a prisoner would be in the position of heading into prison and not knowing anything about kind of, you know, the prison procedures, the rules, the laws, you know, what are their rights? So it's good that they have that channel, that access to services like yours by recommendations of word of mouth or the Inside Times. So it's, it's good that they've got that access to, to that aid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there, there's also like lots of Sudoku, there's lots of, you know, um, publications on, um, you know, yoga, how to relieve stress. You know, there's lots of other excellent uh, publications in the Inside Time. Fantastic. I'll be, sh- I'll be sure to check out the next edition. <laughs> so what's been, what would you say has been the highlight moment on the job so far? You talked about, you know, having the the owner of being able to bring certain cases to the court of appeal, but I can also imagine something as, as simple as, as helping say a prisoner get transferred into a, a lower security prison or, you know, attending your uh, prisoner's parole board hearing and it going well, those might also have, you know, as equal you know, satisfaction and impact. I mean, um, I think, there's been three that genuinely stand out when you ask that question. The first one being my first ever criminal appeal success at the Court of Appeal. That was, you know, within a year of starting that case Coast solicitors. And we were able to have this individual's conviction overturned and... Um, he was released instantly, you know, having spent two years in prison, this individual then is passed on a message saying, pack your thing you're going home, you know, without even having the opportunity to speak to me, to tell him that his case had succeeded. Um, the others have been, you know, I think um, last year, um, just at the start of lockdown, I undertook a, a, a parole case for a life sentence prisoner. And um, it was a case where the family felt that they had no hope. You know, they contacted me, I believe, through Facebook. You know, they they were telling me that they, they felt that they didn't have any hope. And over the time, we were able to, you know, put a degree of support structure in the community in place for him and highlight this to probation, highlight this to his uh, prison offender supervisor, so as to allow those parties to make their resettlement plans around this massive support network that was available to him in the community. And we were able to convince the parole board that this individual's risk can be uh, managed in the community. And they directed his release um, because there was a significant amount of, um, you know, uh, support structure in place in the community, lots of family who can help him with employment, you know, who can help him with mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the only other one that stands up to mind right now was just before Christmas, a long-term client of mine um, called up and her mother was dying. And um, at that moment in time, you know, the pri- uh, the prison 
were not being able to contact um, the hospital and get all the confirmations they need, et cetera, et cetera. And what we did as a team there with one of my paralegals is we ensured that we were able to get every single team that was involved in this particular matter to get in contact with each other and pass information on, which then subsequently allowed for uh, a risk management assessment to be made to allow my client to visit, you know, her dying mother um, shortly before she passed away, you know, whilst escorted by two officers. And what really stood out for me there was there were two officers who were on leave um, during this period and they came off leave, right, to escort my client uh, in that situation. And that was really, really touching because, you know, you often hear, you know, that officers are cold hearted, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that shows their human side. And I think, you know, it's important to recognize that as well. Quite an interesting selection of examples. It's You've gone from, say, as major an event as getting a criminal conviction overturned to just as simple as facilitating the access of a prisoner to go see their sick relative. But it's in, in each of these examples, there is that sense of direct personal impact and changing somebody's life for the better. Did you always know that prison law was something that you wanted to do as a career? Or t- tell us about your motivations and, to, and your story as to how you got into this profession. Um, I mean, um, I'd say I slipped, tripped and fell into it. You know, in an accident, <laughs> that wasn't my fault. Um, um, I had no idea what prison law was. And I went back over some of my courses at UCL when I was doing my master's there. And I remember one of my friends telling me about there being a prison law program, but it never really fazed me much. I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. I was good at as, uh, you know, I started my career six months earlier before, you know, doing prison law. Uh, I started off as an immigration lawyer. And when I moved to Kessering Co. Solicitors, I, it was to be an immigration lawyer. Fortunately for me, you know, um, my supervisor, who was supposed to be, you know, passing, starting me off uh, in this field of immigration law at Kesarenko Solicitors, was on leave. And I was given a case uh, in prison law by the principal solicitor, you know, who said, you know, spend some time reading this, you know, you've turned up today, you know, we've introduced you to everyone, we've shown you how the systems work, you know, there's no point of you going home yet, just read this and make some notes for me. And it was this really, really gory uh, case. Um, and it got my adrenaline racing, you know, um, and I thought this is an area I'd like to practice in. And slowly, you know, I was doing bits and pieces here. And over time, I went up to my manager within like two weeks and said, I'd really actually like to do this area of work and not immigration law. And they needed people in this uh, field of practice. And yeah, um, uh, they took me on and I have not looked back. Um, you know, with prison law, every day is exciting in a sense because you get a new offence, you get something that you've not seen before. Um, so, you know, it's not uh, something that is repetitive and becomes a bit mundane like other areas of law. And for all that excitement and, and kind of volatility and the different cases, like I can imagine all the factual scenarios that pop up might be, it must be quite engaging. I've got to be kind of the boring person in the room and talk about financial security, uh, because even though it's quite a dry subject, uh, given the state of the uncertain job market and the rising cost of living across the UK, especially in London, 
a lot of people are increasingly turning to you know financial security. So in the area of prison law, you know, what is the financial compensation like? Well, I mean, if we think about it, there are very, very few firms, if any, that uh, deal with private prison law cases only. The majority of the cases are state-funded, and as with all state-funded areas of law, it's very poorly paid. Um, And as a result, you know, the firms can provide you with either, some firms provide you with a minimum wage to start off with, um, and others provide you with a slightly higher than minimum wage. Um, And this over time increases. I think, you know, at our firm, the starting salary is, um, you know, £16,000, then it goes into £20,000 in the second year. And in the third year, I've had many junior colleagues who are earning about thirty-three to £34,000. As long as you are able to get through that first and second year, there is the opportunity for you to earn a relatively good wage in this field. You know, it's significantly above the national average and also above what uh, other lawyers and solicitors get in legal aid firms. And over time, you know, that salary does increase. I am earning significantly more than what I earned uh, two years ago, you know, um, and that's because of the uh, firm structure. And as you get experience, you undertake other areas of law, you know, you are developing yourself and making yourself more valuable to maybe a firm that needs somebody who has the special uh, specialties and specializations that you have and they're willing to pay you a slightly higher salary. Um, I've stuck at it at my firm for a considerable amount of time and that has allowed me to develop my own case law and using the payment structure that we have at my firm to earn a good living. Now, it's a living that um, a commercial solicitor would earn in their second or third year but uh, you know it's a very good living for me and the lifestyle that I have and uh, you know I'm in an exciting field of uh, law that not many other people I know uh, do and um, you know when comparing it to some of my friends some of them are in fields of practice where they're looking at a contract for two three months um, and are bored to death. So a lot of people actually move after the first few years from commercial back into, uh, you know, civil and legal aid work and civil rights work. And it's exactly that sort of balance, I think, that we're all looking for between, you know, financial security. But at the end of the day, we also want to be at a job where we enjoy the work. So as long as, you know, it's it's our financial security is maintainable. And from what you're saying, it sounds that you know, the first couple of years are a bit more difficult on the finance side. But if you push through and stick it out, it is a job that's very enjoyable, but also one in which you can kind of enjoy a good standard of living. Absolutely. 100%. And so you were talking about kind of, you know, the skills that uh, you develop and, and that having that certain skill set, which will allow you to excel in prison law. For people that want to get into the prison law business, what are the skill? what are these skills in particular that you would need? I think um, you need to be mentally strong. Uh, you need to have a good stomach. You will come across uh, some things that will turn your stomach and make you feel sick uh, on occasions. 
So you have to have a stomach for it. Um, in addition to that, you know, the standard uh, skills that any good lawyer needs, you know, you need to be able to um, have, um, you know, good communication skills. You are communicating with some people who have learning difficulties with some people who barely speak the English language with some people who have not, you know, gone past primary school. And you need to be able to ascertain vital information from them in a manner uh, that supports their case on you know you all it's also important to have uh you know good advocacy skills um you will be expected to as a prison lawyer to represent clients at either parole hearings or in front of the independent judge i think these are the standard skills that are needed you need somebody who has an interest in human rights somebody who has an interest in um how individuals in our society should be treated. I think if you come from a very conservative approach, you run the risk of kind of, you know, alienating your clients and not being able to um, meet uh, their needs. I have worked with uh, colleagues before where I've thought, God, you're really not cut out for this job. And within six months, uh, they've left because it either doesn't sit with their ideological principles or they just do not have the stomach to deal with some of the things that we end up dealing with. And so how do you recommend students kind of develop these skills at university? I think that's one of the biggest difficulties for law students currently at university is that, you know, they ask the skills that are necessary and and some employers tell them, but then they find it difficult to develop these. Now, things like, you know, growing a stomach and being open-minded are things which I feel you either have them or you don't, or you're willing to develop them or you're not. But more generally, kind of the things necessary as a lawyer, so communication skills and very much, you know, being able to take tailor your advice, specifically, you know, translating legalese to layman terms, especially I think is necessary when you're dealing with prisoners. You know, how, what are, what are kind of uh, activities or kind of resources that you would recommend law students to turn to in order to develop these skills effectively? I think um, mooting is very, very important for your advocacy skills. Um, I think, um, you know, joining the debate club again, is very, very important. Uh, Being able to argue something that, you know, doesn't sit necessarily easy with you, but arguing it anyway is very, very important. Um, Other things you can do. I mean, when I was at university, I worked as a sports coach. I was coaching people who were, or kids who were six or seven years old. And one of the things that, you know, that seems odd with being a lawyer, but one of the things I had to do, I had to communicate, you know, information to these children in a simple enough language that they understand, again, there is a transferable skill. Um, I think, you know, um, those things are important. There are loads of transferable skills. To develop a stomach for things, if you're in London, I strongly advise that you attend the Old Bailey. Go and sit one afternoon and watch a case there. It's free. You can actually go there. You just have to leave your mobile phone and bags in the... um, coffee shop or cafe outside the court you pay a pound for it and it's secure um and then you go and sit there you know the first case i ever watched uh, was the baby p case i'm not sure many of you will remember it but it was a horrific case of child abuse uh, by the mother and the stepfather and again that's one way of learning whether you have the stomach for this line of work because you will come across cases like that in this line of work other things you can do, you know, 
go and do some voluntary work at the local citizen advice bureau. If you are interested in prison law, there is um, the Kessler and Co. Um, intervene charity, which provides, um, you know, uh, individuals with the opportunity to do some really invaluable voluntary work in terms of, you know, being able to speak to clients, taking their instructions, being able to draft letters for them, um, and being able to draft court documents. Those are skills that are absolutely invaluable to anyone in any line of work. The other thing I'd suggest, you know, uh, there is the prison advice service that offers uh, voluntary opportunities. I believe the law reform, uh, sorry, the prison uh, reform trust, they also offer voluntary opportunities. If you are unable to do these sort of things, you know, I've had over this COVID period, three or four people contact me on LinkedIn and have asked me, how can I help you? right? I've got so much free time on my hand. I'm either going to sit there, watch Netflix and eat a pizza, or I can gain some valuable skills. And what I've done, you know, I've set them a set of tasks and said, you know, can you go um, and summarize these cases for me? You know, that gives you an understanding of the area of law that we do. And it allows you to develop the ability to summarize uh, documents efficiently. You know, uh, I've uh, assisted with some drafting. We've done some freedom of information requests to be able to find out more information. Um, or when things do ease down, you genuinely, what I did when I was ooh, 21, uh, with my girlfriend at the time, we called up, we, we went on the law pages because in 2000, Google wasn't very good at these things. <laughs> uh, 2000 and, uh, I think it was 2008. Right, we couldn't get a lot of details at that time, and uh, we found all the local firms. And what I did was I called up every single one of them, and I said, "Is it possible to come and do some voluntary work with you?" Um, I think five or six said, "Bring down your CV," and one actually offered me an interview. And I did like three work, uh, three weeks of uh, work experience in the summer, and it was really, really interesting to get an insight into this firm and I developed really really a uh, good relationship with the principal there who still you know 11 years down the line 12 years down the line still you know checks up on my legal career to see how I'm doing um so you can do a lot of things sometimes it requires you being brave sometimes it requires you um you know biting the bullet as they say and putting yourself out there you're going to get a lot of rejections. Rejections are never fun. But the moment one of, uh, you know, one of your arrows strikes uh, the middle target, you know, you've got your foot in. And I think that's so important, especially now with the COVID pandemic, as you were saying, that a lot of people feel very uncertain and distressed about their future prospects, especially law students who are graduating this year or next year or law students who graduated last year and still haven't been able to find employment. They look at the COVID pandemic and they think, well, the legal market was already competitive enough. Now it's even more competitive. So what what words of inspiration would you have for, for these students, for, for these people, as they want to you know, pursue their dreams, to pursue their ambitions, but feel put off by the whole context of events, which you know, has dissuaded them almost? I mean, just look at myself here. I, I came out of university following the financial crash. 
you know, and 11 years down the line, um, I've been able to, you know, establish myself in this field of law. And I achieved that through practice and, you know, taking active steps to get into an area of law and making myself better at it. You know, if you are dedicated, and by dedicated, I don't mean, you know, you sit there, you read everything, you understand everything, you become the smartest person in the room. Not at all. If you have a goal, set it, you know, and figure out what ways um, you can achieve that goal. And if it doesn't seem clear, approach somebody on your LinkedIn uh, who is in that area of law and go, this is my goal. How do you think I can get there? And believe you me, right? One or two of them will answer you. And because of their experience, they will be able to shine light in uh, uh, on methods that hasn't crossed your mind necessarily or because of the pressure and stress that's on you about, uh, uh, you know, getting into the career. You haven't really thought about it. So, you know, if you get a bit of work experience, you'll be able to take that first, second step. I, I do a lot of recruiting for the firm. So I actually look at the individual candidates' um, CVs and I look at their, you know, um, work experience and so on. The thing that often stands out is an individual who hasn't had their CV looked at by their university or an individual who turns up and hasn't really thought about the firm's background or hasn't got work experience. You really do need work experience because that will make you stand out. And work experience can be as little as during the summer, one day a week, you know, that exposes you to things and the work practices of a firm. Because the last thing a firm wants is somebody who hasn't had any experience to come into that environment and then go, God, I really hate this. This is horrible. Why are we helping these people? And then leaves three months into it, leaving the firm, having to go through the entire time-consuming and expensive recruitment process again. Um, so what I'd say is really have your goal, set up your goal. You know, don't let this current circumstances uh, put so much pressure on you that it blinds you from actually being the route to your goal. If you're struggling, you know, reach out and ask for help reach out to your LinkedIn uh, contacts and, you know, ask those people how they were able to get their foot on the ladder and what you can do to do the same. And, you know, nine years later, you'll be excellent in the field of practice that you're doing. I think that's fantastically put, and especially the idea of, you know, being proactive and, and reaching out. I think LinkedIn now has become one of the perfect, you know, resources and, and, and places of social media to reach out and ask questions uh, to people who are in the field that you want to get into. Now, we've talked prison law, we've talked prison law work, we've talked prison law skills, we've talked motivational advice. Now, I like to end off these interviews with a bit of a more lighthearted tone. So I know we talked about how pop culture, movies and TV shows give a negative image to prisoners and the prison system. I want you to tell me what is your favorite dramatized legal character on TV or, or movies and why? God, um, I think, um, I'm trying to think. Um, I think it was, uh, I forgot her name. She was in um, The Good Wife. 
her face is there, but the name skips me. She wasn't the lawyer. She was the Asian lady in The Good Wife. I used to love watching The Good Wife uh, for an hour during my study breaks. I would be at home studying and The Good Wife would come on, I think it was about 10 or 11. And I'll sit there and go through an entire episode. Is it Kalinda Sharma? That's it, Kalinda. That's it. That's it. I was thinking in my head, Colinda, Colinda. It was like, can't be Colinda. Nobody would call a character Colinda. But yeah, Colinda. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love The Good Wife. Um, It's a fantastic portrayal of what the American justice system is like. Um, There was um, a new comedy series. um, I think it was called Life at the Bar um, on BBC. Um, that was a very funny and very realistic portrayal of what the life of a barrister in a criminal practice chambers is like. So, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I've seen I've seen The Good Wife. I loved it. Um, I don't know. Did you see that they made a spinoff called The Good Fight? Uh, I didn't like it at all. I thought it was uh, a bit less realistic, but uh, definitely The Good Wife stands out. I haven't seen that, but the thing that always gets me is friends who have no idea about my area of law who constantly <laughs> talk about suits. <laughs> I, I refuse to watch suits because of that. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's any good. But people talk about suits and I'm like, oh, real life is really not that like that. I think I think it, it started out interesting and obviously it does glamorize the corporate law life, but I don't know, I think quickly it descended into a discussion of uh, office romance politics. So definitely definitely not an accurate representation of what the day-to-day life of any lawyer is like. I mean, if I could give any recommendations to people, you know, to learn about prison and uh, prison law, uh, well, not prison law itself, but, you know, there are three really good films. There is a film, an English film called Startup. <laughs> There is a French film called A Prophet, and uh, there is a Spanish film called Cell 211. If you can watch any of those, they're fantastic, fantastic films that, you know, deal with the day-to-day life in prisons. Fantastic. Well, Shigar, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and answering all these questions. It's been lovely to talk to you. Now, if any of our audience members want to reach out and ask you any questions, can they? And if so, how? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, add me on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm usually quite active there. Um, and then I'd be happy to, uh, you know, reply back. I, I'd usually give out my uh, work email address, but um, a lot of the emails are now going to junk. And then I get back to somebody three <laughs> months later when I do notice something's in the junk mail. So it's much, I'm much more active on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Shikar. Thank you very much, Max. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about prison law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Shakar. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. Enjoying Legal Tea? Well, we want to hear from you, the audience. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Give us a shout on our social media platforms at LegalTea.uk or send us an email at hello at LegalTea.uk and spill us your tea. Till next time.